Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Hey folks, Happy New Year. Welcome to the 2021 edition of Blockhead. Uh, Here we are in 2021. I hope things are going well for you. I hope 2021 is looking better for you than 2020 did. Uh, I know we got off to a crazy start uh, this year, but here we are, a little more stable now and uh, standing on our own two feet and looking forward to the new year with all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So, uh, yay. I'm excited because I've got a couple of great shows lined up for you. Today and next week, we're going to be talking with the great cartoonist Pat Sandy, one of my favorite cartoonists of Next Door Neighbors, which is on Go Comics and Instagram and elsewhere. And uh, you should be reading it, Next Door Neighbors, if you aren't. It's one of the funniest strips on a day-to-day basis. I just love that, that strip. And Pat's here. Pat is an, an enormously talented cartoonist and graphic designer. If you've not seen his great graphic caricatures uh you're missing out because they are really stunning and you can you can check those out sometimes on his instagram at jp sandy on instagram but uh so pat is a big doonesbury fan and i'm a big doonesbury fan and that's why we've come together to talk doonesbury because well 2020 we're a little late but 2020 was the 50th anniversary of doonesbury's first appearance in the newspapers as a syndicated comic strip and both pat and myself are big fans and wanted to mark that occasion and of course you know it started i think in the late fall in uh in 1970 so you know really there was not all that much material so it was really you know 1971 where doonesbury really got going so i don't feel like we're off the mark too much so i'm talking this week with pat we're talking about doonesbury and we're going to talk about it next week and so it's all about Doonesbury because as I said what a great comic strip and what it's been there you know through all of our adult lives and, it, and it's chronicled our adult lives or uh, those of us who grew up during this period we grew up with Doonesbury and literally and uh, his characters aged as we did and so uh, it, it's just deep in the heart of a lot of, of those of us who practice this art of cartooning who grew up in this period. So I'm so excited about it. And so Pat and I love that comic strip. And, and that's what we talk about for a couple of hours over the next couple of weeks. And following that, even better, if anything could be better, I sit down and have a conversation with David Stanford, who is the editor of of Gary Trudeau and Doonesbury. So uh, he worked really hard on the brand new Doonesbury or Deberry at 50, which is the, uh, I guess you call it a, an archive collection of every Doonesbury strip since 1970, uh, all put onto a flash drive uh, and handsomely collected in a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, and uh, I don't know what you call that. It's like a big case that's got this little flash drive in it. But it's also got a wonderful, wonderful user guide in there, which chronicles Doonesbury and, and, and current events of every year from 1970 on. And that is really eye-opening, too, to see everything that's gone on in the world and also in Doonesbury. And, uh, and I can't think of really another comic strip that chronicles our history as completely as Doonesbury. In, in some ways, it may be maybe the most comprehensive history of the last 50 years that we, we have uh, at Doonesbury, for better or for worse, right? So anyway, David Stanford will be here. We're going to have a great conversation about all kinds of things Doonesbury-related, so I'm really excited about it. So let's get to it. Let's get to Pat Sandy, myself. We start off this conversation... It was a long intro, and so that conversation I've sort of left on the side because that was 
between Pat and me, and I don't think it'd be anything you'd be interesting, interested in, because it didn't have anything to do with cartooning. But we do sort of segue right into a discussion uh, about Doonesbury from a discussion of some of the current uh, current events or, or recovering from some current events, if you will. So here we go. Pat Sandy of Next Door Neighbors and myself talking Doonesbury. We're talking about racism, you know. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, absolutely. Right. I mean, well, it, and that, oh, for sure, for sure. And I think that that ascendance in 2016, well, you know, as appalling as many of us thought it was, you know, many also tried to normalize it. And yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think that constant daily dose of Mr. President mm-hmm. did that. Yeah. Normalize that. Some, some things that we would normally consider outlying attitudes, you know, yeah. I mean, right wing, extreme right wing points of view. You know, we saw some of that at, uh, on, in the photographs of the Capitol the other day. Guys wearing T-shirts that, you know, uh, you know, obviously overtly anti-Semitic. Oh, my God. Yeah. Dying. You know, all that stuff was was the fringes before. Now, all of a sudden, that that fringe stuff is right there in your face. It's in the yep. it's center of. Yeah. Thing. And that's up. That is truly the upsetting part where the line has been crossed. And then it's then suddenly, you know, satire is like a spitball against a tornado. I mean, I'm not sure how you satire something that's now at that level because well, it's, you know, yeah. I was going to say, well, if anybody could, scary <laughs> right, right. To satirize something like that. Yes, for sure. <laughs> that's, that's, and I guess that's a nice segue, man. Yeah. That's, hey, I'm always looking. You know. Well done, well done, Jeff. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've got I've got my broadcaster chops down. You know. Uh, so, <laughs> but I'm thinking if anybody could, because you know, I just read the Doonesbury 40, 40 year anniversary book. But I think you saw my wife got me that for my right. birthday, right? My Is that the big white book? The yeah. It's a 50 pound thing or whatever. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. I carried this thing around. I'm carrying, I got it up here in the office today. It's like, uh, you know, in, in my office, my closet, my recording closet, my studio. Um, yeah, I've got it with me, man. This thing weighs a ton. It, it's oh my like, God. It's, I, I can't even really put it on my bookshelf. What I have to do is I have to lay it on its side, you know, and just do sort of a different, yeah, right. approach, you know, I, you know what oh, I'd man. like to see? But, I'll tell you what, I would love to uh, see Dunesbury published in the format that they did peanuts you know that, well uh, i would Fanta too did peanuts. i i i would too and, and i don't quite understand why the 50th year has come come by and and it's a digital collection and right. you know there may be reasons for it um but i'm not sure you know when you've got something like you know for better or for worse idw is publishing that yes. year by year um, the same thing is true there. They've got Bloom County. They're doing a whole bunch of other strips year by year. Yeah. Fantagraphics is doing peanuts. Somebody must have wanted to do Doonesbury, you know, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. And I'm not, yeah, to your point. Yeah. It's a little bit of, um, you know, like, why is this not out in multiple bound volumes and slip cases and everything? I mean, yeah. I would buy it. I would, I would spend everything to get that stuff. Seriously. Oh yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, in, um, a couple of weeks, I'll be talking to, uh, I think, a guy by the name of David Stanford, who is an editor and worked with Doonesbury for a while and worked closely on the Doonesbury at 50 collection. So I'm going to ask him, mm. you know, some of this stuff. That'd be great. That would be great. You know, because, um, well, I'm really looking forward to that because, you know, you get some behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and find out more about how that collection came together and what the decisions were, because it is interesting. I mean, uh, you know, has, does it have something to do with, you know, is it an, uh, a moral ethical stance about, you know, printing paper or switching over to digital because it's cumbersome to print one of those? Right. Superficially, you, know? you almost wonder if, you know, if it's the eco issue, which is, and I, you know, I understand that for sure, but uh, I love my books, Me too. <laughs> okay. you know, Books aren't going anyplace, you know. No, they're not. I mean, especially when they weigh fifty oh pounds. Oh my god, that thing has got to be about ten pounds. I'm going to say. Yeah, at least it yeah. weighs as much as my fat cat. Not nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very well put. Yes. So but it's a but great it, book, you know. Oh my god, it's yeah. fabulous. I mean, I have to say, 
as I read through it, you keep waiting for after, you know, through 40 years of material. Uh, and obviously this is curated material. You keep waiting for that moment where it kind of flags, you know, and it really never does. Uh, oh, this, no. The quality of Trudeau's work over the course of 50 years is really, really impressive. Um, he, you know, from year, you know, certainly by the second year, but even in that those early years, he just hit a high and just maintained that consistency. Um, sort of a mix of, of absurdity and reality, you know, um, that there's makes growth. It, there's amazing, yeah. amazing growth. Now I will say the interesting demarcation with Doonesbury was the sabbatical in, I don't, what was it? 82 or I think it was something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure. And he, he took 18 months or I think it was about a year and a half off to, to reassess, mm-hmm. you know, and to reboot the strip. And when he came back, I was, a, that was a different looking strip. Absolutely. Also, I think too, if we, if we go back in time and I think about some of the things I read at the time, I think he, he was kind of, you know, overwhelmed that, um, constant treadmill you're on. Oh, for sure. The grind as they call it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he maybe had reached a breaking point with that. Um, and also Doonesbury was kind of a phenomenon, you know, uh, you know, in the seventies and eighties, there was obviously there was Garfield, you know, and Bloom County came along and later Calvin and Hobbes. But, but, you know, during that period of time though, Doonesbury was really like a linchpin in the newspaper. Oh, a very, very, it was the, the one that people talked about. And it's certainly by the mid seventies, I think that, uh, you know, he had really, really caught his stride. His early stuff, you know, I think I mentioned this last time I was on there. My, you know, I, I mentioned my mom was a William Buckley conservative. Right, um, right. And she adored this comic strip. Fascinating. Think about that. Okay. I know. And I think that should, I, I think that probably in a circuitous way comes back to what we're all dealing with today is that my mom, a conservative that loved William Buckley, also loved Doonesbury. So that yeah. level of discourse and ability to see, you know, other points of view, even if we didn't agree with it, I thought that Trudeau was incredible and incredibly talented in his ability to humanize the debate. He absolutely. The debate absolutely. right now is not humanized, Jeff. Yeah. It really yeah. is. It's kind of insane, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, there, there's just this, this inability to see beyond you know the caricature to the reality and as you said to humanize it in Doonesbury one of the the amazing things that you point out is you know he absolutely absolutely found a way to do that and you know it it was he wasn't coming from an ideological point of view I mean he's clearly you know left-leaning in his politics that all comes across you know he's definitely a liberal um, liberal concerns motivate the strip all the way through from the beginning, you know, the introduction of Joni caucus on, oh, for sure, you know, yeah. or, or university issues with, you know, going back to the early, early days of the strip, uh, protests at the university and all that right. kind of stuff. But, you know, he also, um, I mean, in response to what you're saying, one of the things I thought of was, you know, Gerald Ford said, you know, to get the news about what's going on every day, I just read Doonesbury. There you go. Yeah, exactly. What, what a, you know, what a recommendation, you know, and that's a Republican, right? You know, right. I think, I think one of the interesting things in the early going, when I say early going, I'm talking about bull tales in 1968 and 69 when Doonesbury was in its embryonic state, yeah. you know, just before, uh, Anders McMill got to it or, the syndicate, the, um, or universal, excuse me. Yeah, the, universal. He, he practiced the, the look of the strip was, I, you know, I think he even kind of referenced it at one time with sort of this, uh, I don't know if the term is verite or cinema verite, where he compared it to, you know, the immediacy, the immediacy of something, the kind of getting the news out very quickly, which he used to sort of justify what he thought was sort of the chicken scratching type look of the strip in the early days, get it down on paper real quick. It was very Jules Pfeiffer. The early, the very early runs of Doonesbury are extremely indebted, you know, to Pfeiffer in that sort of sequential monologue type of approach. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, it's funny because I remember at one time, um, John Lennon, when he put out instant, instant karma, one of my favorite Lennon tunes, you know, yeah, Lennon, I, I think, I think he wrote and recorded that like in the space of maybe 10 days or so. wrote, recorded, was, and released yeah. in the space of 10 days. 
Yeah, it was ro- written, recorded, and released in ten days. I think it yep. was it was written and recorded within two days. Right, I and he, I think he was it was the same mindset. And I think that Trudeau in the early going, I I'm not sure how and committed he necessarily was because oftentimes I think that's been referred to in hindsight. But I think that the strip shows that it shows this um this sort of reporter's mentality in the field. And it's yeah. very effective. It really was. And it's even more so in terms of political satire of any kind. It was done in a way that had an immediacy that I, I don't think its predecessors, maybe, you know, like Pogo and stuff like that, that had that immediacy. No, Pogo certainly didn't. I mean, no. Pogo's very, you know, very thought, polished. Yeah. Very polished and very thought out and very specific. Mm-hmm. Well, Kelly was right. Kelly was a pro, you know, in the sense that, I mean, he had been schooled at Disney, you know, he'd worked in papers. He was, he was, and the interesting thing about Kelly in, in, and I think this Trudeau becomes this, but but Kelly is an old school newspaper guy, you know, I mean, his, his, his background, you, when you read interviews with him from back in the day, Kelly comes across as a guy who was one of those guys in the bullpen at the news at the at the newspaper. Right. And he hung right. out with newspaper people. So that was, you know, just his his milieu. And, you know, I mean, there's a cliche of what those old old newspaper guys were like, you know, hard drinking, cigar chomp, scrabble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cynical. And, I, I, you know, idealist who had become cynical. Right. And uh, over time and and he was very much one of those. But so the work he turned out, though, was highly polished craftsmanship. Beautiful stuff. Just oh, beautiful my God. And, well, the was, and I, yeah, I think he on. used, you know, he was very. um Oh my goodness. He was very metaphorical in the way yeah. that he got his points across. And I mean, yeah. when you talk about, um, you know, what was it? Senator Malarkey was based on McCarthy and all that type of stuff. And I think uh-huh. it was such genius level thinking that that's what makes Trudeau's ascendance in the early seventies. So striking because Trudeau dispensed with the metaphorical aspect and brought these characters right into the strip. I mean, one of the, one of the most incendiary of strips that he ever did, which was one of my favorites was uh, Mark Slackmeyer and his yeah. reference to John Mitchell and the guilty, guilty, guilty. That got him oh kicked out of half the newspapers, man. You know, oh, that oh was hard. Yeah, it really was. I mean, he took the step. He took an, exactly. He took it one step further because I think things were so heated and it, it, you know, the use of allegory by that time, you know, in the seventies, there was this idea, late sixties, early seventies, this idea of stripping away the artifice, you know, Oh yeah, getting getting to the truth of the matter, um, and and you saw that not just in in comics, but you you know you saw it as you were pointing out in music. You know, it was mm-hmm. happening in music. It was happening in a lot of places. Let's just say it clearly, right? Instead of you know decorating it, it's sort of a cut to the chase, cut mm-hmm. to the chase, and tell it like it was. And I think it was very very reflective of a time period when I think that certainly the youth of this country was was tired of artifice. They, they wanted to, to kind of put everything on the table. And I think that Doonesbury was incredibly effective in that regard. Well, you know, That's not to diminish predecessors, by the way. I mean, no. I think that Pogo was absolutely incredible and I, it's yeah. still one of the greatest strips ever made. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. You know, beautiful, no, beautiful sure. stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, really we all aspire to, you know, to a certain degree, there's this desire to aspire to Walt Kelly's level, you know, <laughs> um, and and the oh same my as, God, you know, his art. Yeah, his art is fabulous. But, but you know, I was he makes me think that makes me think of little Abner too, because you know, I've talked same to people, thing. right? You know, yeah. the artwork was just spectacular. And and the parody was also uh, you know, quite pointed at the time. But like Kelly, again, you know, Abner and and um you know Abner was cloaked in this veneer, you know, of well artifice and al cap though was uh, fairly conservative so i mean he he kind of he, he became conservative yeah. he started off you know in the 30s a- he was Roosevelt, you know kind yeah. of liberal in a way a uh, lot of people were but that happened you know to that generation as time went on you know particularly after world war ii there was this kind of shift from you know roosevelt democrats to becoming you know more conservative oh, eisenhower sure. And Al Cap actually in his last, oh my God, I forget what year Abner kind of went out. What was it? 75 something. 
Yeah. In 74, 75. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, his last decade oh, man. was really caustic. Yeah. And, and he was sort of the antithesis in many ways of Doonesbury, you know, yeah. or yeah. little Abner was the antithesis. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that really is interesting. You know, this kind of political satire on the comics page, we can see, we trace the trajectory of it, but oh, as yeah. you're pointing out, by the time Gary Trudeau comes along, he just sort of, you know, all of the elements within abner had become kind of decadent you know but oh, for sure caps him. but abner so, used a lot of, he didn't i don't wouldn't say he used metaphor necessarily but I, I, everything was sort of you had to get to this sort of read into it a little bit mm-hmm. you know and get like in little abner there was a lot of this sort of country yokel business going on oh, yeah. and but there was still you know you if you read it closely enough you knew what he was talking about again trudeau when he came along he said i'm not doing that you know yes yeah. <laughs> just laying it out there. He laid it out, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the difference too between like um like you know films uh, of the 50s and 60s war films, right? That that sort of glorified World War II and the Korean effort. I'm thinking of sort of John Wayne type stuff. And then by late 60s, late 60s, you know, people had had enough of that kind of thing. It wasn't it wasn't it couldn't resonate anymore because they were seeing the news every night with Vietnam. And so right. instead you had mash, you know, mash right. shows up and films like that catch 22, you know, that parody satire, but also, you know, take apart the mythology. Of, well, I mean, then you take it a step further and you get to things like apocalypse now. Yeah. You yeah. know, and suddenly you've, you've actually, now you're not only cutting to the truth, you're, you're finding a deeper level to it. You really yeah. are. And yeah, uh, platoon's very, another one. Yeah. And, and so Trudeau and Doonesbury are very much a part of that. And I think too, when I think of, you know, I, I really like your connection to journalism and, re- and reportage, you know, the idea that yeah. Gary Trudeau was trying to get down his ideas and his thoughts, his responses as quickly as possible. And he had to in those days, particularly as Watergate started to roll around and, right. and you know, he was staying topical he had to work pretty much like an editorial cartoonist in a lot oh, of ways. that's that's for sure that is absolutely for sure and i think that i think the particularly the early syndicated years i guess i'm referring to late 1970 to like 73 just prior to the the you know nixon and the whole uh, resignation that time period it got now again visually it got tighter and tighter and i think that's a you know a, a testament to his assistant. And I think it's never really talked about too much, you know, Don Carlton. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, Gary, uh, Trudeau had, uh, someone helping him there that really tightened this stuff up. I mean, it's really a testament. I think it's only been one guy over these years. I'm not sure. Maybe there's somebody else that does the coloring, but the strip got much tighter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm going now to the acknowledgements of the end of the, um, uh, at the end of the 40 year retrospective book. And Don Carlton is the guy who came along as uh, what he mm-hmm. almost 40 years ago in 71, I guess, yeah. um, to help, help him survive grad school by inking the strip. Yeah. And he's helping me survive deadlines ever since. And so, you know, by 71 Trudeau is not worrying about mm-hmm. inking anymore. Carlton is. And so you have this very different kind of polish um, to the work. Plain, it's yeah. still, it's still pretty loose, man. It's still, you know, I'm looking at the stuff from 71 and I'm going into 73 and, you know, it's still got, I think Carlton, I don't know what his skills are, what his skill sets are really. Cause I'm not familiar with him specifically, but right. I think he's holding pretty true to, to what he's been given. Yeah. To what yeah. he's been given here. You know, and, I think, um, I don't know if it mentions it in that book, but I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that there was sort of, uh, some of the stuff that I've read that it was sort of, you know. Trudeau would hand off maybe two weeks or five weeks worth or whatever it might be all very tightly penciled. Yeah. Really? You can imagine really tightly penciled. And then, uh, Don, you know, takes it from there, but the polish, yeah. you get to the mid seventies and you get to the, yeah. the late seventies yeah. and it's a unbelievably detailed strip. It really is. Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have the book here in front of me Yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm going between, you know, the strips of say 73, 72, 73. Yeah. And you know, um, then I'm going to 74, 75 and he's gone from using like a lot of say, you know, parallel line hatching, you know, in, in Mark Slackmeyer's t-shirt or, or uh, turtleneck rather. Right. And, 
a lot of reliance on that. Now by 74, 75, he's using Zipatone, you know? Right, right. And it's definitely, there's a uh, a more solidity to the line by 74, 75 that, that it's still Trudeau. And it's still got all of the the handwriting of Trudeau, but it's also got, you know, this kind of solidity to it, this assuredness to it that in 72, 73, still not quite there, you know? Um, Oh, for sure. But it's, it has, I mean, can you imagine like, particularly in the, uh, the height of the Watergate era, how often they drew the white house, for example, you know? And I, I, I love so those scripts later on where wow. Zonker and Mike are showing all the sets that they have yes. for, for Dewsbury. That's great. I mean, it's incredible because, you know, think about it. I mean, we're in this this computer era where you just know everything is just cut and paste endlessly and you, you just typeset and you do the whole thing. And I mean, I'm not I don't do my stuff like that, but I mean, we, we know that procreate and all the various digital programs and so on can just, you know, you can imagine Trudeau probably could have just repeated that white house image over and over. And he did, but when you, but he didn't, when you look at the strip, actually, you see the, you know, and as a kid, right. I was doing this cause I was looking at this and I was going, right. well, is he really drawing that over and over again? And you look and you see subtle differences in each oh, and, and every I, you know what, Jeff? I love that, by the way. Me too. I mean, <laughs> in a world of cookie cutter, I, I have absolute all the respect in the world for using that to replicate and it's great and it's all that. But I love the organic nature of watching the drawings, to your point, mm-hmm. very subtly change from panel to panel because that's kind of what life is like. I mean, we're not all just cutouts, you know? Yeah. Although I got to say, is it, it, when you are drawing the same scene in one panel to another panel, isn't it a pain in the ass? Oh, that, which is what I do. Yes, it's a pain in the ass. I mean, you're trying to get, okay, did I put that coffee cup at the right height in each panel? You know, it's like uh, uh, every time, you know, so wait, wait, is his nose a little too high in this one? Yeah. You know, it's like, right. oh, crap. Well, you, <laughs> you know, know, you could say the same thing for Schultz. I mean, Schultz very often worked, not all the time, but in the same type, kind of static you know, format. Yes, he did. And yeah. it's, you know, I mean, drawing the same thing over and over again. Look at Schultz. I mean, he did it for 50 years. My God, he, he did no it for help, no help at all. No help at all. And, and from, and by, at a certain point, penciling wasn't even a thing, you know, he just, oh, okay. He just yeah. You know, he just drew it with pen and ink and, you know, people talk about the shaky line. Oh man, give me a break. The guy's right. working without a a net, you know, <laughs> right. Well, you know, and that's, and there's a, there's a number of cartoonists out there that I absolutely love because of, for example, their spontaneity, Keith Knight's one of them where the, oh. this stuff just comes out and it's, you can yeah. tell that it's not necessarily, and forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but it sure doesn't feel like it's roughed out at all. No, you know, it just doesn't. boom, it just comes out. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it yeah. re- there is a free flowing manic kind of quality to his stuff that, oh, yeah. that again, too, there's also a connection there, I think, to Doomsbury too. Um, oh, for sure. For quality. sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, okay. So, so we're, we're talking about some of that stuff. I mean, you know, Doomsbury was an enormously influential strip to guys of our generation and maybe the next generation. Oh I yeah. Mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I go back to the stuff that I was doing when I was uh, 20, 21, 22, that age, actually maybe through my twenties, I go back and look at that stuff, man. It is straight out Doonesbury in like every, almost every conceivable fashion, you know, from yeah. the way in which it, it is, the scenes are set up the way in which the, the, um, and this is still true today, the way punchlines are, are passed along, you know, the, with the that timing act, devices, timing yeah. devices, yeah. you know, um, there just so much of it has its roots overtly right there in Doonesbury stuff. And, it, and it's interesting. I'm sitting here, uh, again, you know, my wife is great with buying me Christmas presents. I, I presents all the time. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something else. Well, she just got me, uh, the complete Bloom County. So Which looking, volume or the whole set or just the whole specific? set. The, wow. The nice. Whole nice. Thing. And so I'm looking, I'm reading through that, which is great. Again, oh, it's funny stuff, funny stuff, but man, that first, that, that whole strip, it's like, just like the stuff of the early days, it starts off in Doonesbury territory, you know? Oh, well, you know, he's not even shy about that one. He, I think in the, um, I have the first two volumes of that. And I think in the one of them, I think he goes out of his way and discusses in some in an intro or something about that entire issue. 
And I think he, I think to his, to Brethren's credit, he owned it and just said, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, I think, but it will, yeah. Well, uh, by the second year, you know, he's got, by, by 82, you know, the, the strips in his second year, he's found a voice that's oh, you know, it's yeah. different. And it was distinctly different. And I think that one of the things, you know, even more so, you know, we talk about Verite and the, the way the strip is drawn and all this kind of business. But I think one of the things that I've always probably cherished the most of, uh, about Doonesbury, and I will, by, by connection, I'll put uh, Bloom County in there, is what I've called the rhythm of uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that Trudeau, uh, Schultz had this for sure. I would say Schultz had this and uh, you know, maybe some of the precursors, you know, perhaps Al Cap, but he was Al Cap wrote everything in dialect. And so did Pogo to a certain degree. Yeah. You know, sin or um, you know, accents and everything, but Doonesbury, the way it was written spoke like real people speak. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, that, got to me when I first, and again, I mentioned my mom and I was probably about maybe 13 when she brought it first to me. And, you know, I started reading this, it was in the paper and it, it speaks like people speak. And I think that is something that often gets overlooked and how that strip resonated with people when it first came out. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, You know, it really does. He's got a handle on dialogue uh, that, that it's, it's incredible the way he's, he's so able to deftly combine you know naturalistic dialogue with the absurdity of the situations or yes. the absurdity of characters intentions i mean duke you know is the most absurd character but mm-hmm. great character but you know somehow or another his dialogue reads as real it reads oh for natural, sure you know it's just like, the read you know usually you know op- oftentimes it would get wrapped up you know, in the rejoinder, so to speak, which I kind of referring to the fourth panel, you know, mm-hmm. usually it's some type of response thing, but it's, it, I can't recall a Doonesbury strip that ever felt false to me in yeah. terms of how these characters react or relate to each other. It just never felt structured. It felt like real conversation. And I think that breath had, you know, breath had obviously went into a little bit of a more surreal yeah. avenue yeah. But I think it stands, I, I, I would make the same case for his work as well. And I think that to me is what makes Doonesbury so, so, so special for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, like I said, I put, I put Charles Schultz in there and I, and I, you know, I've often mentioned Farside as one of my all time favorites, but think about it. Uh, Larson did almost the same thing writing wise, his gags. And again, I, I can't think of anything specifically, but when you think about it, a lot of times they were structured as in, you know, Larry just suddenly realized that he went to blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. That type of the way people talk is mm-hmm. a very, very tough thing to pull off. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. It is. I mean, there's a, a looking for the right rhythm in a yep. punchline or a rejoinder. It's this kind of combination of both. I mean, you have to, there's a certain spontaneity that has to be there, but there also has to be a certain kind of rhythm and flow. It's very musical in that sense. You know? Oh, it, it definitely is. It's, you know, the funny thing is, is in, in many ways, I think you know, there's always this, this, um, I'll, I'll use the term screenwriter. Okay. In terms of how, you know, movies are put together and the screenwriter's job really is to kind of humanize an otherwise dry source, maybe a book or something like that, and kind of give it that rhythm and that pacing. And, um, you know, this, this discussion always comes up, hopefully not to digress here, but when we talk about Stanley and Jack Kirby and the, the Marvel mm-hmm. house style of the sixties yeah. was extremely different in terms of the writing, in terms of the dialogue and the stuff that people grew up with in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so I segue again, back to Doonesbury and that, that level of authenticity was probably the icing on the cake that made that strip so resonating yeah. during what was really a very volatile time in this country. You know, not, it makes like, me, not like today, not like today though. Yeah. Not like today. So yeah. Not like today. It, it makes me think of um, all in the family. Very much. I was just thinking of Archie Bunker this morning Archie in that Bunker. regard. Yeah. yeah. All in the family was a very different television show, very different sitcom from anything that it was on the air in those days. And, you know, in those days you go back and you think about, you had, here's Lucy and you had, you know, my three sons and you had, you know, all of those sitcoms that showed the American family unit, right. Yep, yep. Uh, in whatever form, for some strange reason, a lot of those were male headed households without 
mothers. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah, that is but true. That's I know. Isn't it weird? You know, <laughs> that there, we had my three sons and we, we had, uh, what was the one with Uncle Bill, Brian Keith? Oh, um, that was a uh, family affair. Family that. affair. You, you know, you had uh, the the bonanza, you know, and there it wasn't, right. you know, I mean, Lauren Green raising these three kids by himself and nobody ever, it's weird. I don't understand it. But anyway. Well, the, the other corollary was Barbara Stanwyck, but that was big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like big, big Valley. Valley. But anyway, your yeah. point is made, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, Barbara Stanwyck, she didn't have anybody either. It was just yeah. a very strange phenomenon. Hey folks, this interruption is to bring you a brief message about my newest project, Green Screen. What if movies weren't just flickers of light on a screen, but windows into real worlds in alternate dimensions? What if one day you found yourself transported to the land of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West was chasing after you? In green screen, a Hollywood sex symbol wakes up one morning to find she's in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where she's no longer a movie star, and every movie ever made is a real world. She travels from one world to another, wrestling with movie monsters and evil empires, struggling to find her way back to a world where movies were just movies, and a green screen only a blank surface. Green Screen is a sci-fi fantasy comedy comic book, 32 pages in full color. You can buy the print edition at Etsy, at Jeff Grogan Art, or subscribe on Webtoons Canvas. Be sure to follow at Green Screen Comic on Instagram. Um, so, but all of a sudden you had all in the family, in the midst of, of all this stuff. Now, you know... Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore sort of, you know, bring a sense of of at least an idealized real world working family, working yeah. couple, raising a kid. There's this, they have friends and neighbors. Some of the incident incidents feel like part of everyday life. But when you get to all in the family, it's like all of the pretense and the artifice, you know, uh, in, uh, are blown out of the water by Archie and Edith, you know, and meet and yet they were and, humanized. They were unbelievably human. Oh, oh my God. So. The characters yeah. are so, you know, I mean, Archie Bunker was somebody you could hate and revile and also have affection for. You know? Well, and that's, uh, and I think, again, that's something that's near and dear to me. I mean, I think the idea of a character that is a, a, on, a, on a very visceral level is somewhat repellent mm -hmm. once you get to know them. And we certainly got to know, you know, Archie Bunker over the years. So oh that, and I'm not talking about the last two years Archie's playing that that yeah, was kind of a bad news yeah. thing kind but towards weird. you know as that series evolved the character grew and yeah. it started to it it really left its political base and got into more human stories which was yeah. really really fascinating and again there's a parallel with Doonesbury it's a very close parallel actually yeah I think so they were both happening at the same time yeah. they yeah. were both yeah. impacting the culture at the same time and I think you know, they both resonated because of that grip on on authenticity. Yes. You know, I mean, the authenticity was there, and I and I think you know when we look at uh and 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 do and Trudeau also had this ability to also satirize his own community. You know, he was able to take the generation gap, the the divide between, you know, the 60s generation, the boomer generation and the previous generation, the World War Two generation, the parent that divide. He was able to find the absurdity in both. Oh, you know, he he was equal opportunity. Yeah. For, both for sure. And for his sure. father. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. Reverend Sloan. The re I mean, there's there's um, they're really. That's another aspect that makes Trudeau so, I think, unique is it was not stridently one-sided. No. It, you it, know, he saw the silliness on both sides. He he did. And and it's, again, his point, his perspective seems clear, you know, and I don't know the guy and I, I haven't yeah. read a lot about him, but you just get the feeling, okay, so that he's coming from a left point of view. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That seems to run throughout the strip. But like we were saying earlier, uh, there's a balance there. There's a humanity there. Um, and some of the greatest characters in the strip are on the other side of the aisle, you know, the, and, there you go. Or, or at best, I mean, in Duke's case, apolitical. I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, Duke is about Duke. Duke yeah, doesn't Duke, have a base. He does <laughs> just, 
He's Duke. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's Duke. He's like, I, I have to say, he's got to be, you know, one of my favorite characters in the strip. I mean, oh, I, I love, uh, there's so many characters to love in the strip. I guess we should we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, who are some yeah. of the characters, you know, right off the top of your head? We're talking about Duke, well, but Joni who... Joni Caucus, I think, and uh, uh-huh. Lacey Davenport. I think Duke, in yeah. my case, Duke is, resonates with me as well because the early strips, I was reading them in real time and didn't quite get, you know, at uh-huh. age fourteen the drug part of it, but certainly yeah. knew that he was on something, you know. Yeah. And I rem- <laughs> I remember one. I don't even know. It probably was around seventy three, maybe. And he, what was it? He, you know, they brought Jan Wenner into the strip or yeah. you know, brought Jan Wenner into it. <laughs> Duke's, you know, going to write a story and Zonker brings him over and all this kind of stuff. And there's one scene where Duke is stripping out and he's, he's like trying to hammer bats or something like this. Yes. He's, you know, he's hallucinating in the strip. He's hallucinating in a strip in American newspapers. I mean, really? Yeah. Come on. That was so funny. Oh, it really it, was. I still laugh at that. So I'll have to dig that out at some point. Oh, me but. too, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to find that one because you know that that was absolutely one of the. It was in the first collection, uh, God, big collection, so the Doonesbury Chronicles, and that book was like a bible to me. You know. Oh my God! 70s. Yeah. You know, I wore out multiple copies of that book, and and the first time I got it, it was handed off to me from a buddy of mine, and. I had just, it was just around the same time when that book came out, I was really, you know, just starting to experiment with getting stoned and stuff like that. Sure. So yeah, yeah. It, it was just such a great combination. <laughs> and, oh, it was just surreal. And, I'm, and I, I wish I could find the sequence. And this is, this goes back to my desire to see it chronologically published. Yeah, yeah we so could we find, find it. Stuff. But I mean, the, the scene, oh my God, it was just so funny because he was, he had a hammer, I think. And again, I'm very doing, I'm doing this from memory, but I remember he's looking to beat something in the office and it was just so, he was upset about something and he was still responding to Zonker about something. I just, it was just so unbelievably funny, human and surreal all at the same time. Yeah. And, and, you know, oh gosh, where was that? It's, it's, it it is really hilarious. And the drug references are, again, are brought in and they feel absolutely natural um to the situation you wouldn't and and you know think about it he's in the newspaper at the time the complaints that must have been coming in you know of course he was probably shielded from something you know but i'm looking for i'm looking for it now and i'm wondering if it's before he before duke went to um nicaragua or not nicaragua samoa american samoa to become the governor you know uh (laughs) stuff like that is just it was unbelievable duke is a, a really absurdist character um who you know kind of like takes all of these ideas to their extreme you know oh um, yeah you know well, the yeah, decades it's hunter thompson you know i mean oh yeah it's hunter, and, <laughs> and hunter thompson hated that character <laughs> yes yep yep absolutely hated him and threatened you know lawsuit after lawsuit i don't think he had a, i think trudeau says in this book somewhere that um you know, he didn't get very far with that because he was a public figure. Oh, for sure. And, you know, uh, so there's only so far you could you can go, you know, at right. least then. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I can't find it, man. Oh, well, if I find it, I'll, you know, I'll I'll keep spinning through here. But right now I've got, oh, yeah, here, here he is. Here's Duke. Duke oh, and Jan Wenner. Okay. And um, what's he doing with it? Okay. Just, <laughs> well, all I know is that Jan Wenner was uh, was uh, perpetually pissed off at Duke. <laughs> right, because he never turned anything in on time. Any, or was, <laughs> you know, and when he did, it was all gibberish because he was too stoned to write anything clearly. Right. So, you know, you were talking about Joni Caucus, and Joni Caucus is really an interesting character. Um, you know, we meet her initially when, let's see, was it? Um, running away from her husband. Yeah, she's running away from her husband and her kid. Right? Yeah. She's running away from the whole thing, and she hitches a ride with with Mike and with Mark, right, on a ride to discover America or something like that. Great and, sequence. Uh, great sequence, and that's yeah. how we're introduced to Joni. And Joni, you know, really, she's a great character because she introduces us to, you know, in a whole zeitgeist in a way uh, of what women were going through. You know, the women's movement was going through in the early 70s and as the 70s developed, you know, Joni Caucus is literally taking one life, this life that had been sold to her, this set of ideas, you know, being married to this miserable guy, 
yeah. and being stuck in it and realizing, no, that's not the way life has to be. You know, I, I can, I can forge my own path. Rebuilding you know? her life. You know? Yeah. And, and, sh- and so the, the strip really, I mean, that's one of the greatest things is it, 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 it investigates the way in which Joni, you know, recreates her life. And I think that's, that's one of the first moments where the strip really takes a starts. human, hugely yeah. human turn. Yeah, it really did. I think, um, you know, I think he, she eventually, you know, meets Rick and all that kind of stuff. And the sequence where they first get together, so to speak, is astonishing. And I, I would have to say, you know, groundbreaking, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jan mm-hmm. Elliott was on the show and she talked to me about that, too, is, you know, one of those moments that was, um, you know, really significant. I think it was. I remember reading it in the newspaper and I think yeah. it was, you know, it was just like, whoa. You know, wow, what's he doing? Here? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like, yeah. wow, he can do this. You know, he can do this. Right. Yeah. These two people are sleeping together. Right. And yeah. this is during, you know, I, you know, I think in today's environment, that seems like quaint, you know, that that would be a well, he, the way he presented it. And I think it's something that is interesting for a strip that is so uh, word or copy centric is that there were no words. There were I no think words. it was several. Wasn't it like two or three days where you just do this yeah. panning scene around, you know, it goes to the house and the bedroom and all this type of stuff. And there was nothing spoken. No, it was you just know, I, until you know, you they, what, we see them. Yeah. You knew what was going on yeah. you know, just from the, the images that he presented to us. Right. And it was right. beautifully done. Very effective. And not at all funny, you know, I mean, there was moments of humor in there, obviously, as they sort of awkwardly, you know, connected, but, uh, it really was very human and very beautiful. And I can't imagine what the response was, what the response of the newspaper pages was with the editors, you know, I, I, you know, there was a point at which news, uh, Doonesbury went off of the comics page onto the editorial page. Oh, that, yeah, pretty early on. I think a lot of, um, you know, I mean, he was even kind of. I don't know. I think, I think even the cartoonists at the time thought, you know, why is, why is this on the comics page? I mean, he had his, he kind of chafed a few people in the industry itself, really. When he won the Pulitzer, when he won the Pulitzer, you know, some folks weren't very happy about that. A a lot of uh, traditional, I think, editorial cartoonists were, you know, taken aback by that. Uh, But it's, you know, he had a different point of view that I think was just, it was almost inevitable. It really was. And by the time you got to the mid seventies to, to the point we're talking about earlier is that the humanization of that strip really started to just hit every aspect of culture. And he was getting into storylines that oftentimes, oh my God, they would go on for six months and then suddenly they would pivot to something else and you just had to hang with it. And and again, to your point about the characters, there's gotta be several hundred characters in that strip. Oh man, I can't even 50 years, you know? You know, it's, it's interesting. I wonder how many, certainly in the newspaper, I don't think you're allowed to, you know, I don't think the fan base or the readership is that connected to the newspaper page anymore so that you could do what Gary Sadly, sadly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I, I know. think it's unfortunate sure. because in that industry, and that's a whole other, you know, obviously another discussion at another time. But I mean, I think the industry, that is a very good point in that the attention span is everywhere. I mean, we talk about, you know, we're talking about social media and what's been going on lately and all that. And I got to tell you, I mean, sometimes you got to just turn it off. It's a yeah. churn. It's like a churn. And so yeah. be- because of that, a, a strip as incredibly interesting as Doonesbury, I, I don't know if something like that can gain that kind of traction in this day and age. Right. Okay. Because you, you have to follow it you know, not necessarily religiously, but, you know, you do have to follow it closely. Well, you have to be invested. You yeah, really you have to be invested to really follow it. And I think we're not in an era that allows that. I'm, no. I'm weighing my words heavily because, you know, we can probably find examples that say otherwise, but I don't know. I don't know either. You know, I, I, I think what, what's interesting now is to is to take these collections and read them, you know, as collections. Chronologically. Chronologically. And when you read you know, the 40 year retrospective book of Doonesbury and you read it through. This is like, this is, and the same thing is true. Peanuts. Um, this is like reading, you know, the equivalent of a great novel, you know, Oh, for and sure. It, it takes you through a lifetime. And, and one of the things that for me, 
I think for folks of our generation, you know, who grew up with Doonesbury, when you go back and you and you read it, you realize, man, you all of the the various events and trends and things that are reflected in the strip are things that we went through and and are touchstones for us in our lives. Yeah. And when you read the collection, it's like it's like a, a you know a historical record more than that but it's almost like this great novel of our lifetimes you know in well, comics it reflects our lifetime I, I think and that's another that's a really good point about Doonesbury I think even Bloom County got a little bit you know we're in the 80s by then and yeah. Bloom County went in such a surreal direction that you know wasn't necessarily reflective of our lives maybe not but it was reflective of pop culture that's for sure yeah. but oh, Bloom yeah. County I mean yeah Bloom County, but Doonesbury yeah. was on a, on a far more um intimate level and certainly in its first decade was reflective of our lives. I would say that. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, well, we were talking about Joni Caucus and, and the development in Joni Caucus's consciousness as it were yeah. is, is, you know, resonant uh, and reflective of a whole generation's consciousness changing, you know? Right. And, um, and the same thing is true of Mike, you know, and his growth, eventual growth, um, and some of the problems he went through. Um, but I think Joni is probably, you know, that one character really who kind of embodies the changes that were happening, not just in terms of gender, you know, but also in terms of an understanding of, of what life was about, what we were supposed to be seeking, what we were after in life, you know, this, this kind of fulfillment that was, you know, outside of the boundaries of the, um, the templates that we had been given, you know, the post-World War II era about what gender roles were or what, you know, what we as people were supposed to aspire to. I think, I think there was there was something the story about her life is really, you know, central, I think, to the kind of, as we were pointing out, the humanistic quality of the strip. Well, yeah. And I think it it really, you know, it it brought in, I think, family dynamics heavily into the strip because her daughter was, you know, JJ is brought in and all this type of stuff. And I think that, you know, there's entire when I say sequences, we both know that we're referring to say four and five month sequences and all that. Yeah. But I mean, there's, you know, she comes in and I, and she gets with Mike and all this kind of stuff. And I think this, this family that blows up around the strip started to become the dominant narrative rather than necessarily politics. I think, um, you know, when he came back after the sabbatical, Mm-hmm. And then we had the riffs off of like Max Headroom and all that kind of stuff and the cigarette characters and, you know, so oh, on yeah. and so forth. The, the, he brought the surrealism into it that kind of put the, the family dynamic thing sort of on the back burner mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, you know, the family dynamic of it suffered a little bit. But I think up until that sabbatical, the family aspect to it was just really inspiring. I yeah, thought. I was always a little taken aback by you know some of the more surreal aspects you know um they do kind of now some seem as a reaction maybe to bloom county a reaction to some of the other stuff that was going on but that being that being said you know looking at them reading them within the the context of this 40-year collection uh that, that i've been reading um you know i think they they find their place and as kind of Satire is kind of commentary, uh, and and they sort of stay they in the, at least in the book form they're not overwhelming. You know, I remember seeing them day to day, and it seemed like there were a lot of them, and that kind of lost me for a while when I was reading it in the newspapers day to day. But uh, reading them in the book, at least the way the book is edited, they seem to take a back seat to you know the things that we're talking the, about the character narrative. Yeah, I, I why and I think that you know Trudeau spent up until the return of this from the sabbatical. I mean, he spent 15 years yeah. in that very Pfeiffer-esque static mm-hmm. narrative that he had, you know, yeah. really. So when mm-hmm. he came back, I think there must've been at least as a graphic designer, I think that was, that might've been his degree. I'm not sure, but in his background of that, I think it was a desire also just to play with the form a little bit. He had already established the strip. He'd, you know, Mm-hmm. He was going into the middle age years of the strip, so to speak. And I yeah. think doing that, you know, he chopped up panels and would do 
yeah interesting stuff with it you know yeah lots of stuff that comes into it uh later on after the sabbatical is reflective of a desire to push the strip in yeah. different directions you know to grow the strip and yet at the same time it remains you know quintessentially dunesbury there's still the family oh, narrative yeah. drawing it the characters and the growth of the characters and you know there are a couple of things that struck me you were talking about uh, JJ and I thought it was kind of interesting how JJ is in some ways like the I don't know there's a quality of her mother that's in her but she sort of takes that self-determination to an extreme you know yeah. Uh, it becomes a kind of narcissistic character and experiments way. and dance and whatever, you know, I mean, she's kind of involved in different things and, you know, I yeah. mean, what about Boopsy? You know, oh, that was interesting. There's another character who's BD's grown girlfriend. Yeah. Grown a lot. She starts off kind of just as a trope in a way as a, oh, for sure. You know, a, a trophy girl and then yeah. uh, you know, becomes something very different as time goes on. Um, so, well, okay. So thinking about the characters as we're we're talking about them, you know, the the central characters are, I guess, um, uh, started off anyway as as being Mike and BD and Mark and right. Zonker, right? Uh, you know, Boopsy. Uh, I guess would we call Reverend Reverend Sloan one of those central characters? I'm not fairly early on. I think you know if you look at um, my my favorite. I hate to even say it because it really wasn't so-called Doonesbury at the time. But if you look at the very early Yale strips, uh -huh. you know, he was, it was pretty much all tropes when you think about it. I mean, it, it's uh -huh. know, football players and the school references yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and all that. And Mike really in the early, early strips, I'm speaking specifically of uh, bull tails here is mm -hmm. just kind of a horny college guy. Yeah. And really yeah. trying and, and a little bit cut out of the Charlie Brown loser. Mold, oh yeah. You know, definitely. definitely. Yeah. And, um, but what's funny is I believe, I think his, his first roommate was BD and based yes. you know, Brian Dowling and all that. And the, the tension point there was beautiful because, you know, BD's character was kind of a meathead, sort of a, uh, kind of a sports guy, you know, yeah. and, uh, and was successful. All the girls loved him and so on and so forth. And Mike was the, the loser at college. He was, you know, what he you reminded know, me of in many ways was uh, Pinto in Animal House, you know, <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, yeah. I have to spend a while that reference. But I mean, the kind of, of loser pledge that shows yeah, up yeah, at yeah. The university and is real green and all this type of stuff. And uh the Mike character, and I think this might be the the ultimate testament to the strip, is the the ap absolute realization of that character after fifty years. Oh yeah. I mean it really is because in nineteen sixty eight it was about as broad as you're gonna get. Yeah, it it really was. And and in the early seventies too. Yep. yep. Um you know, Mike is very much just kind of a, a cardboard, you know, cutout of, of that kind of character. Um, he becomes a real human being so much so that, you know, um, in a lot of ways, you can't really sum him up in a in a sentence or two. I mean, he is some um, nebbishy, you know, nebbishy, but he's also he sort of shows that kind of disaffection of the generation as it yeah. grows, grows up and sort of takes its place in society. Mike yeah. sort of, you know, the, he starts off. He's not particularly political. He's of his generation, though, but he's not like Mark, you know, Mark Slackmire. He's oh, he, for sure. You know, he's uh, his concerns are much more directed towards himself and his own you know um his own realization if you will right mm -hmm. and um and so i think as time goes on there are a lot of strips where mike is a wry observer of the political world but he doesn't really seem to voice any great opinions one way or the other unlike mark who does and zonker on the other hand is some somebody else entirely but you know, as time goes on, Mike goes through a bunch of stuff. Oh, for sure. And, you know, sure. The, the relationship with JJ is a big one. Um, but then, you know, his daughter is another one, you know, uh, and that's uh, yeah. kind of, you know. I, I think, and that's what, you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned Zonker as well. Zonker might well have been the Zen center of that yeah. strip. And I think he represented sort of a, um, oh, I don't a freedom of mind. Mm -hmm. 
And I yeah. think there was so all these archetypes in the early, you know, in the early going of that strip became so realized over the years. You know, it's interesting. We talk about characters. One that I go back to, and I'm I'm trying to remember the character's name. It was during the, a lot of the Vietnam sequences, and his name was I think Freddie. Fred. 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 Yeah. Fred Terror. Yeah, and he came across him. He's Viet Cong, and yeah. uh, it was BD. You know, BD comes across. You know, he's in the war and all this type of stuff. And I think when we talk about humanizing a character or humanizing a an archetype. And at that time, you know, when you're talking about Viet Cong, yeah. it's pretty hardcore, right? Yep. And Fred, you know, suddenly we're having strips with Viet Cong talking to mom. It was you know? freaking fantastic. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's really, that's something that we hadn't really touched on was that, I mean, there's a surreal nature when you consider in 1971, 72, what this country's take was mm -hmm. on Vietnam how yeah. polarizing it really genuinely was. And Trudeau found himself a character to use in that regard. Well, this Amazing. is the thing. This yeah. is the thing about him that we, we keep going back to is his ability to navigate these differing points of view. And while conveying, I think, his central sense of his moral sense, you know, yeah. Uh, the, the morality of his point of view is always there, I think, within the strip, right? There's, there is, you know, I don't mean a, you know, a moral majority kind of morality. There is a, a human yes. mor moral point of view that, that comes through Trudeau's work. And at the same time, it, it's not mitigate it's like it's not reserved for one ideological point of view or another trudeau finds a way of of you know finding the humanity he yes of, that is very well put there is no one specific point of view he actually forces the reader and fred is a very good example of this yeah. he forces the reader to see it from that person's perspective yep and yeah. whether whether he agreed with it or not and forget all the you know, the stuff around Vietnam, it's fascinating that Fred was pretty cool character and he was just a kid, just a kid. Yeah. Just Fred kid. was a great character. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the strips with Fred, yeah. um, you know, and BD is sort of becomes human through Fred also. And this reminds me of how Charlie Brown kind of becomes realized with Lucy. When Lucy appears and begins to grow into herself, Charlie Brown becomes Charlie Brown. It's really, he's yeah. not really Charlie Brown before that. And in some sense, BD becomes more of a person uh, when he's becomes, when he becomes friends with Fred, it's not, he's not entirely realized. I mean, later on, right. obviously BD goes through some real traumas, you know, I mean, oh, losing his sure, leg and, sure. yep. and, you know, one of the great moments in the strip later on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but in these early days, you know, there is, there is really that, that introduction of Fred, you know, takes BD and takes the strip to a whole nother level, you know, and, and it's well, and I think unbelievably funny. <laughs> there's two points of view going on there. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the BD, you know, slash Fred arc that was uh, was occurring in the early days of that strip is that, you know, he was he was representing probably the most polarizing views mm -hmm. in the country at that time. But he was representing that in human form. Yeah. And the way he wrote it, you know, there's some strips where, you know, F Fred's just kind of milling around and he's just kind of, like I said, I go back to the, what I said a few seconds ago, he's just a kid, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and a kid that is caught up in a conflict. And so in a way was BD. I mean, yeah. BD was a, was a kid of say whatever the age was 20 or 21. That's kind of caught up in, uh, you know, in the war. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting tightrope act that he was able to, you know, execute. And he does it all the way, you all know, the across way. 50 years, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. 
And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. That seems as good a place as any for us to break this time. Uh, next time, we come back right where we left off, talking Doonesbury, Pat Sandy, and myself. You can find Pat on Go Comics with his strip Next Door Neighbors, or follow Pat on Instagram at JPSandy. You can also follow me on Instagram at GroganJeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F, or at GreenScreenComic. My latest project is Green Screen, a comic book sci-fi fantasy adventure. You can find it on Etsy, the print version, etsy.com slash shop slash Jeff Grogan Art. You can follow it on Webtoons Canvas. Look for it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. That'll do it for me. I will see you next time, Pat Sandy and myself, talking more Doonesbury. And after that, David Stanford, editor of Doonesbury. So we'll be talking Doonesbury for a little while here. Uh, I'm a big fan. I hope you are. It's, uh, I'm really excited about sitting down and talking with David uh, about the production of the latest Doonesbury uh, compendium or archive, if you will, Doonesbury at 50, bringing together every single Doonesbury strip from the last 50 years. Wow. What a, what a great piece of work. It's really pretty cool, too. So I've, I've got it, looked at it. It's, it's really wonderful. Lots to look forward to, and I hope you'll come back soon. For now, thanks for listening. Thank you.